The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome into an episode of Locked On Braves brought to you by the Locked On Podcast Network. And today I'm going to skip most of the preamble because I don't have a ton of time to get through that. We got to make sure we get enough for our guest today, who is writer for The Athletic, writer for Baseball America, the Sabre Award winning author, Emily Walden. Emily, thank you so much for coming on. I know this has been in the works for a while. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on the show. Oh, thanks again for having me. This is this is going to be fun. I am very excited about this, and I wanted Emily on for a few different reasons. One, I've been trying to get one of the women who are in one of these traditionally speaking male roles, and Emily does it better than just about anybody out there. Seriously, you you, you go through her credentials, and it is second to just about none. And the the crazy thing is that a lot of people might not know is you haven't really been doing this that long. No, I really haven't. This is actually, I say with, you know, quotations, my sixth season, because we're obviously still waiting for the season to start. Um, But this would be my sixth year on the minor league circuit. And it's been an absolute whirlwind. Tell me, honestly, how hard is it to to come up with different content for your athletic subscribers and Baseball America subscribers? Those are two those are two subscription networks. So I got to imagine having to come up with with different exciting content for two totally different websites got to be kind of challenging. I mean, I've known a few PLs trying to write for a little bit and coming up with one piece for one place is hard enough. I can't imagine having to come up with two detailed pieces for totally separate websites. Yeah, and I'm thankful because there is enough diversification between what my rules are, um, such as with Baseball America, for their Tiger-specific content. I just do a monthly submission where it's generally I'll pick out one player in the organization, talk about some development topics, talk about whether it's, you know, pitch development, you know, hitting adjustments, things of that nature, or even something like a personal story. So it's, it's fun to be able to sort of hone in on some different perspectives with them. And then my more in-depth stuff tends to go through the athletic Detroit um, where I can break down more, um, analysis for pitchers or hitters, um, do more in-depth pieces about the state of the minor league industry and things like that. And then I get to add on my national prospect coverage uh, for the athletic MLB, which allows me to sort of spread my wings a little bit and get to know more teams on a deeper level. It's got to be insanely busy. For for times like right now where there's no baseball going on, I know I'm kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. I just went through about a month and a half stretch just breaking on the top 30 of the Brave system. How do you come up with all the content that, you, that you're having to constantly push out right now? Yeah, it's very, very slow right now, which <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Um, I've gotten a few different projects in the works right now. Um, I'm actually jumping on board with Pitching Ninja um, for anybody on Twitter. If you are you love baseball, I'm sure that you have seen Pitching Ninja, Rob Friedman, once or twice. So working on a project with him right now um, for some of his content and then I'll have a few pieces coming up at The Athletic as well. So it is definitely more challenging. Um, I know a lot of people understand that, too. It's it's hard when there's no games because you don't have that continuing 
cycle of activity and, and things happening and transactions and um, trades and all of that. So it's it's tough and it definitely requires a lot more mental creativity. But I think, I think I'm headed in a good direction. So hopefully uh, the content is well received. I would say you are. I mean, you've kind of blown up over the past month and a half now with everything that you're doing to help the minor league players. And I know, I know you can't get too deep into it, but for anybody that's interested in, in reading about this, a lot of people are under this this kind of weird, misguided misunderstanding that just because you play professional baseball means you get a ton of money. They don't really understand that unless you're a first through third round pick, you're really not getting a ton of money. And a lot of these guys in the minor leagues, it's not just guys made up through the first five rounds. You're talking about 40 rounds of a major league draft. These guys down towards the bottom aren't getting paid nearly anything at all. It's equivalent to making about $18,000 a year, if that. Um, but for, for those of, for whatever you can actually disclose, for, for those that haven't heard anything about this, do you mind outlining it just a little bit? I, I'm very interested in, in kind of helping some of these people understand that it's not just as simple as, oh, cool, he gets to play a game for a living. There, there's a lot that goes on with these minor league guys. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest misunderstandings from whether it be new baseball fans or baseball fans who just haven't dug into this very deep is that a lot of people don't even refer to minor league players as professionals. In their mind, professional baseball is the majors. And the thought of it going below the majors is kind of a foreign concept to a lot of people. So bringing that realization to the fan base, I think, is really the biggest first step. That when these guys sign, whether it be out of high school or college, they sign a professional contract. So their contract with their respective organizations is a professional contract. And so some of the stuff that I've done has just been really to work to educate the fan base on the realities of it and what the industry actually looks like at the minor league level, because there's varying levels of pay. There's varying levels of living assistance. And for a lot of these guys, it's extremely slim. So trying my best to sort of keep that reality out there to the fans of what it really looks like and hoping that more fans will become supportive along the way. And we've had a few of these minor leaguers on uh, the Platinum Sombrero, another baseball podcast that I do. And every player we've talked to has to have a, a secondary job during the season or, or right after the season, because it's, you know, it's not like you get to stay in super nice hotels and, and have team cars and, it's not the glitz and glamour of major league. So it, for, for people that think, oh, it's just baseball players asking for money, these guys make less than you do. And they, I get it. They're playing baseball, and they should be happy to play baseball. But you, you don't just tell somebody you should be happy making you know, pennies when you're in the top 3% of the entire world at your profession. Yeah, and that's something that I think fans are just going to have to stay open about because at the end of the day, they're employees for an employer and if you're making at or below minimum wage, that's an issue that obviously needs to be addressed. So my hope has been that the owners will begin to make some adjustments toward more of a livable wage. And with a collective bargaining agreement set to be renewed next year, I think some of this stuff may come onto the table, although the minor league industry does not have a union. So I think that that could also create some more problems. But I'm hoping some people will step up and speak out about it and see if there's some improvements made. And there have been some major league players who have been kind of spearheading this movement. Adam Wainwright and his wife, I believe, donated $250,000 to the Cardinals minor league system. Uh, there have been a few other players who have made six-figure donations to their minor league systems. And that's a 
that is is wonderful for them to do that, but it just kind of highlights the the fact that these guys get lost in any and all labor talks. You're talking about Rob Manfred talking about wanting to get rid of was it 41 minor league teams, saying that there's not a budget for it. Meanwhile, baseball's collecting record highs as far as uh, the owners receiving their the record highs in profits. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me when you consider that these players are actually the pool that becomes your next major league players. Yeah, that's that's completely true, and it's it's tough because there is a lot of red tape that goes on behind the scenes and a lot of things that you do have to sort through. But at the end of the day, if you compare the amount of money that the league is bringing in compared to what even a minor increase for the players would look like, it's it's completely doable. It's just a matter of someone pulling the right strings and making you know, the ball start rolling because I think if enough people stepped up to do that, I think that it would start a league-wide change because nobody wants to be the last team to make improvements. They don't want to be viewed in a negative light. So I think if enough teams stepped up and agreed to make those changes, I think we'd start to see that around the league. And I really hope that's the case. I know here in Atlanta, uh, we were the first team that where they've said, let me say we as if I'm part of the team, but the Braves were, uh, were, were the first organization to go through and say that they're going to continue to pay all of their, their employees and uh, everybody their, their same wages. So hopefully that starts to spearhead that because this isn't, no matter what happens in 2020, whether a season gets underway or not, this is always going to be one of those seasons that we remember forever for obviously different reasons. This is always going to carry an asterisk next to it. Um, just like the strike seasons have, this will be something totally foreign and totally different. So that being said, ha- have you seen the proposals that have come out? I- I'm going to talk specifically about the Bob Nightingale one where he, he says... Um, uh, somebody was talking to him. I believe Tommy Tommy Lasorda was quoted in the article as well. Have you heard anything about that that I can use for confirmation? Um, I've not been told anything specifically. Um, I'm sort of on the same page as most people where it's still just being proposed. Um, personally, I would not want baseball to come back in May. I think that's way too soon. Um, but I think a June or July return might be a little bit more feasible. And that's if you give the players time to recondition because you can't stick them just back on a field and say, okay, guys, go play baseball now. They have to have at least several weeks to recondition their bodies, get back in that in that playing routine, their on-field routine. Um, and I really think that May is far too soon to be doing that. I think I would every I've always kind of had this idea that if they were going to start, they might as well just start it after when the all-star break would have run through. You'll still have what 80 uh, 79 games, 80 games that you could run through, even if you just take it right after the All-Star break. It would give people time to ramp back up without having to run a full spring training again. It would essentially give you time to to readjusting and get used to throwing again. Because if you just start flat out and just roll everybody back onto a field, you're going to go through so many arm injuries that essentially all of your favorite players are going to end up getting hurt. That's more or less a concern. I know I've spoken with a few coordinators who have that same fear. Um, that you're going to see oblique issues, you're going to see um, arm issues, you're going to see hamstring issues. It's it's going to be really, really tough. And so I think the league's hope is that they can give these guys enough time to at least get loose again. Um, they have to hope that, you know, the ones who are back home are still trying to condition daily and stay in, in good form. But without being able to be on the field and have these normal routines down for this time of year, it's going to take some time. So my hope is that the league really plays that into perspective and just doesn't push the guys too quickly. 
Um, because obviously we all want baseball back. It's not a matter of not wanting it back, but you don't want to see these guys put in harm's way just at the risk of, you know, having something ruin their career or, you know, even worse, exposing them to the virus or their family members to the virus before that's more in a contained state. So a lot of factors right now, um, a lot of things to, to think about, and I'm just hoping the league approaches it with the right way. If I had to press you for an answer, do you think we have baseball back in 2020 or do you think uh, the 2020 season ends up being suspended? I think we see Major League Baseball back. I am not 100% confident that we will see Minor League Baseball. Okay, now that's something that I hadn't even considered is you can kind of that that's never even popped into my head it kind of makes sense if you think about it major league teams it's a little bit easier to contain and control everybody's got a little bit more the ability to to kind of spread everybody out is is a little bit easier that way when you're talking about minor leaguers everybody's always around each other all the time it's harder to separate um i hadn't even considered that honestly yeah and it's it's more of just a, a season schedule um that's had that thought in my mind where if you, you know, just throwing a month out there, if you come back in July, that gives minor league teams, what, a month and a half, maybe even a month of playing time. Their season ends first week of September. So they come back in July, condition, start playing in August, and then they're done after a month. So my question would be as the owners, do you open up all of the fields? Do you rehire all of the staff? coaches, front office, sound people, security, ushers, like there's so many people involved. Do you do that for one month? That would be my question. Um, Obviously, I want minor league baseball back, but that's been something in the back of my mind where I wonder, will the owners want to go to all of that trouble or will they just say, you know what, we'll see you in 2021, which creates the thought of saying, okay, what about all these teams that the commissioner wants to cut? So are they just done? How do we approach that? There's so many questions right now because technically for that list of 42 affiliates, this was their last season. If the commissioner gets his way, this will be their last season. So it's, it's going to be extremely interesting to see how they approach that because it could leave a lot of really frustrated people. There's a lot that goes into that, too. When you're talking about just eliminating 42 teams, what happens to the players on those teams? Do you have like a special draft or or do they just instantly become free agents? There's there's a lot that's going to go into that, especially when you consider it's already going to be a weird baseball draft this year where there's talk of it being as little as five rounds or maybe 10 rounds. I mean, high school baseball is not playing now, so you're talking about probably a good third of your draft pool where you're just you haven't seen anything from these guys since early March, mid March, or you're going back into summer league season. So th- there, there's a lot of hurdles to cross aside from just having the teams back on the field playing major league baseball. Everything else along the minor leagues, it's it's an even larger of a limbo. Yeah, it really is, and I think it's just going to come down to what the owners and the general managers feel is best because. You don't want to put people in harm's way. To be realistic, you don't want to put them in harm's way. And you want to do something that makes financial sense for your organization. So a lot of questions are going to be asked. And we're just going to have to play the waiting game and see what happens. Just something us here in America are so great at, which is playing the waiting game and not having a real timetable. Uh, Now, I know we've been talking about that. I do want to discuss the prospect side of things, since that is what you are so fantastic at. Uh, Now, 
I don't know how familiar you've been with Atlanta. We haven't, you know, you, you covered Detroit, which is a fair ways away. Uh, you'd obviously would need to see people in person to really talk about them too much. But when I look at Detroit's system right now, I do see a lot of similarities to Atlanta two or three years ago, right before 2018, like really about a year or two after they started the rebuild, where there's some real prospects, and not just the Braves guys who we're going to talk about, but there, there are a few prospects in here, and they're mostly pitching, where if you're a Detroit fan, you do have reasons to be excited and to want minor league baseball back, because these guys are, are kind of the future of your team. Yeah, they really are, and Detroit is definitely a pitcher-heavy system. Um, they have a few position guys who are, are worth tracking, but right now it is, it's primarily pitching. So, um, unfortunately for the city of Toledo, where the Tigers AAA affiliate is located, they were very excited to see some of these guys come up, and now they're kind of going, are we going to see them this year? <laughs> so, a lot, of, uh, a lot of fans are kind of frustrated with that, but there's really nothing people can do right now. That's the the tough spot about it. So a lot of pitchers on the way, and I think we could see a lot of them in Detroit by next year. Well, talking about those pitchers, let me throw a bone to my Braves fans listeners here. And we're going to talk about the trade that broke my heart more than any besides the Andrew Simmons deal. And that was last year's trade of Joey Wentz and um, Travis Demerant for Shane Green. I am about the largest Joey Wentz fan you will ever see here in Atlanta. Uh, I have had him pegged as an absolute star in the making and one of the best pitchers in the entire Brave system. When he went over to the Tigers, he went absolutely insane. Had over 12 strikeouts per nine, under two walks per nine, and looked like he was on target to actually have a shot uh, in spring training this year. When you, when you throw him into the mix with the other Detroit pitchers, who we'll get to in a second, what were your takeaways of Joey Wentz? I really like Joey Wentz. I only got to see him pitch once in person. Um, I got a lot of feedback from scouts throughout the year about his stuff. And so unfortunate for him to have to have surgery. I know that was that was such a blow because um, he was looking really good coming into this year. And um, the stuff that he had is very, very natural. Um, he's not somebody who gets really fired up. He keeps a really, really steady head when he's out on the mound and his stuff was, yeah, it was just solid, just really solid. He wasn't, wasn't somebody who was overly flashy. He wasn't, you know, over the top. He just went out there and he did his job and he did his job well. And so he was somebody I was particularly pleased with. I'm um, just knowing that he established himself so quickly, which is not easy to do when you go to a new organization. So seeing how quickly he established himself, that was really impressive. And his work was equally as impressive. That changeup of his is so beautiful, and that's that's kind of I'm a little bit different when I evaluate pitchers. I tend to look at young guys, and if they have a really good changeup or show the makings of a really good changeup, I tend to evaluate them a little bit higher than maybe they end up uh, as opposed to guys with you know 100 mile an hour fastballs because everybody in the big leagues can hit a fastball. But when you have a young guy who's 22, 23, 24, and he's got a changeup that's at the same level as somebody 29, 30, that is such. That's such a boon that that a lot of people don't really understand the value of a of a really good changeup since it essentially is your fastball. Everybody looks at the breakers because those are the sexy pitches. Max Fried's curveball, you know, still one of the sexiest pitches in baseball. But a good changeup is so important in today's baseball, especially when you're talking about being able to to deal with with opposite handed hitters. And Joey's is one of the better changeups I've seen in a long time, and he really fits very well in Detroit. I almost wonder if the logjam of Atlanta pitching can sometimes be a detriment to some of these guys because they're not allowed to progress and move forward 
at the pace that they're really able to because there's so many guys in front of them. Well, and the problem for Detroit is they're starting to create a bit of a log jam as well. So <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be kind of interesting to see who they start to shift around because in Toledo specifically, they're going to have to sort of phase some guys out to make room for everybody who's expected to be there um, whenever the season returns. So it, it happens, I think, to a lot of teams who are trying to rebuild where you start to put guys in place. But then when they start to advance up, you have to make some decisions and say, okay, who has the most long-term value? And it's it's the tough part of developing a system is that you have to make those calls and you have to phase guys out every now and then. So we're, uh, we're hoping to see how well these guys transition into AAA once they get there, and we'll see how it goes from there. Well, speaking of some other superstar names in that system, everybody knows Casey Mize. Everybody knows Matt Manning. Both of those two are, are some of the top pitching prospects in baseball. But a name that a lot of people might not be familiar with right now is Tariq Skubal. And what he was able to do last year, the steps he was able to take, really are, are kind of eye-opening and kind of eye-popping some of the numbers you see. I know you've seen Tariq a lot. You've written about him a fair number of times. What's your for, for anybody that plays fantasy baseball, if you're a Dynasty League guy, Tariq Skubal's a name you need to have like yesterday. When you were watching Skubal, what was the big difference for him? What what was it that that broke out for him? He, I think one of the biggest things is that he understands his body. Um, he's not somebody who has gone too far one way or the other trying to figure things out. He, he has confidence in his body. He knows how to pace himself um, and just going with what feels right. He's, he's a big feel guy. Um, he likes to understand the way the ball feels coming out of his hand. Um, he doesn't overthink things, and I think that's the key to pitching success specifically because you can get so deep inside your own head trying to analyze yourself and trying to analyze your pitch mix. And Tarek doesn't do that. He He's somebody who he's very focused and he's obviously a competitor. And so he's going to kick himself if he, you know, misread something, but he doesn't dwell on that. And I think that's what set him apart in a way to be able to continue to have success. But I don't think anybody predicted he'd put up those types of numbers in the Eastern League. No, and that's not really an easy league to put those numbers in. But there are two pitching prospects, as I mentioned, that are in both probably in the top 10 maybe even top five for all minor league pitchers. And that is Casey Mize and Matt Manning. I am team Manning. Uh, I think Matt Manning is going to be one of the top pitchers in baseball. Once he figures everything out, talking about the body size, the premium velocity, the stuff, the, the curveball that he has with it. Where do you fall in line? Are you team Manning or team Mize? Oh, you can't make me pick. That's oh, not fair. I sure can. <laughs> I, I am not somebody who will, Say I'm I'm more pro this guy than this guy. I'll I'll put I'll put the guys in order. Since I saw Matt Manning throw for the first time in 2016, I have believed that he was going to go somewhere. Um, the way that he carried himself and had the understanding of his posture, of his build, and how to still make all that work at six six and being 18 years old when he started. That says something about a guy. He's got such situational awareness. He is extremely poised. He's extremely collected. And his velocity has improved. His breaking ball has improved. His entire pitch mix has improved. And that's that's the sign of a competitor. It's a sign of an athlete. And he's just grown into what I was hoping to see. And I think he's really surpassed that altogether. And with Casey, it's... 
I think for him, he's just had a little bit more difficulty transitioning from the college field, which is similar to what Alex Fiedo faced, um, who was the Tigers' top pick in 2017. Both just absolute superstars in college just didn't have the exact seamless transition. Um, Casey obviously had a huge double-A debut. He threw a no-hitter, which is always really, really fun to see. But beyond that, there's been some health concerns. Um, His stuff hasn't, hasn't been quite as sharp as what the organization wanted to see. Um, They're definitely not writing him off, though. He's only been around for a short period of time, and that's one of the biggest things you have to remember is you've got to give these guys time. They've got to be able to adapt to their surroundings and understand how to pull the most value out of what they bring at the level they're at. But I think Casey's on a good track, and I think he's he's definitely going to do some stuff for Detroit. That's good to see. I've always kind of I've liked Mize, but I've always kind of pegged him as a two or a three. I really do think Matt Manning is going to be an actual ace. And I don't I don't throw the term ace around lightly. I don't think every team has an ace. I think if every team has an ace, nobody has an ace. Uh, but I know we're running out of time, so I've got a couple more players to throw at you, and then one more question. So. Cade Skivik is a guy that a lot of people might forget was in the Brave system. Um, he was in the system a few years ago. He, I actually totally forgot he was even with the Tigers, so my apologies to Cade. But have you gotten to see Cade? Uh, he was always a great person to have around the teams. Everybody loved him as far as his teammates and his coaches here in Atlanta. Uh, he just kind of got buried in, in the catcher backload that the Braves had there for a little while. But what, what can you tell us about Cade? Yeah, Cade, I've known since the Tigers signed him. I want to say it was 20. 20- 15, if I remember correctly, just an absolute fantastic human being. He's always been so polite, so genuine, such a good-natured guy. He clicks with all of his teammates. And um, that was kind of what I had heard while he was with the Braves um, for a short time, that there just wasn't the space for him. And unfortunately, he fell on the negative side of that with, um, you know, being being exited from the system. But he really, I think, is in a good spot with Detroit as far as sort of being able to help cultivate some of these younger catchers. Um, I think he's he's got good leadership skills. He has been around the game now for a while to where he can pass along some of that insight to some of the younger guys. And I think the Tigers really do trust him with kind of speaking into some of these younger guys' lives and sort of helping them come into their own. So I think he's very happy. Um, the last time I talked to him, he said he was very thankful to to be in the position that he's in right now. And he and his wife just announced they are expecting a baby. So that's another exciting thing for them to look forward to. And we'll see what happens once he gets back behind the plate. Well, congratulations to the Skivics there. Uh, the other one I want to talk to you about is another one who has a lot of fans still in Atlanta who were kind of hoping he would get a little bit of a better shot here. Travis Demerit, who before he got dealt in that deal, looked like he was finally breaking out to where he was going to be able to at least be a bench bat for the Braves. Went to the Tigers last year and started didn't have great numbers, but honestly, I thought it was a good transition for him. It was his first time really sniffing Major League Baseball, and I thought he acquitted himself. There were a lot of flashes there as far as his unique blend of power and speed. There's a lot to like about Demerit if you can get to that ceiling, but how was it from a from a Tigers fan and Tigers writer's perspective? How, how was Demerit after the trade? I've actually known Travis since he was down in the lower levels of the Brave system. I watched him Um, I want to say it was during spring training some years back, and that was the first time I saw him. Really athletic guy. I think he's he's got a lot of natural athleticism to him. And the biggest concern I always heard from scouts is the swing and miss. I don't think there was ever any 
real red flags on his defense. I think that that seemed to, you know, to, to get the job done, even for a major league regular, but just a lot of swing and miss. And I think one of the bright spots when he came up with Detroit is that they got to see some flashes of some power that he had there. And I think he has a chance, especially considering the fact that Detroit is still trying to rebuild he has a chance as much as anyone to fight for a position because they're in that place where you can get the job done. The job could very much be yours if you play your cards right. So for him, I think he has to keep that contact rate up if he wants to be in there because that's the biggest thing. The Tigers need bats. They are sorely lacking in bats right now. They have Miguel Cabrera, but he's only got X amount of years left. His body's not getting any younger they need more bats. So if he's able to keep that contact rate up, keep his pitch recognition sharp, has to keep that swing and miss down, I think his odds are as good as any of them. He really reminds me of Lourdes Gurriel. When Lourdes came over and he kind of flew through the, the Toronto system for a little bit, he got a small taste of Major League Baseball early and just couldn't make enough contact, got sent back down. He's a guy that, much like Travis, has a really good power, really good frame for what he's doing, and he's very versatile. He's never going to be like a gold glove style defender, but he can play a little bit of everywhere, and it allows you to get him in the lineup at different spots. And if Travis can do that, I, I think the world of Travis, I, I loved his profile. Hopefully he can keep that down. Now I know we got no time left, but I have one more question. This is the most important question to me. How did it feel winning a Sabre Award? <laughs> um, that, I will admit, I got pretty choked up when I got the news about that. They, they sent me an email um, a while before the ceremony took place and notified me. And I couldn't share anything because they wanted to wait until the, the ceremony took place, which I was supposed to go to until this lovely little virus took its toll and my spring training trip got canceled. So I was not able to be out there for the ceremony. Um, but I got to watch it online. They streamed it online. So I watched from home. And uh, my sweet friend Meredith actually accepted on my behalf. So that was that was really cool to see. Just because it wasn't something that I did to have everybody say, oh, you're such a good writer. You're so good. It was more I wanted acknowledgement for the subjects in that article and I think that's what happened. I think that it opened people's eyes to the point where there was so much respect built for the players through that piece that that was the most fulfilling thing to me. Because there's been so many people who have tried to speak out about this topic over the years. And so my stuff was just another piece to it. It, it definitely was not the only voice. Um, it was just really another piece to the puzzle of trying to be a voice for these players. So it was it was a pretty cool feeling. I, I can't lie about that and something I'm definitely going to treasure for a long time. I'm sure you will, but uh, we are out of time. I told you I'd keep you at 30 minutes. I did go a little bit over. I apologize for that. Uh, but for those of you out there, make sure you're following Emily, one of the best pure writers you will ever read in, in any sports writing for sure. Uh, some people you can see are, are good with sports knowledge. Some people are good with writing. Emily is one of those that is truly gifted at both, which is why she's won a Sabre Award six seasons into her career. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciated it. You are far too kind. I will send you a check in the mail. <laughs> <laughs>